0: All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will jump into our our lesson this morning. Thank you, Lord, so much for just the blessed opportunity to be together to talk about the gospel, the good news. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. We know that the things that we're talking about, we need the aid of your spirit to really understand. And um, I can be up here and blabber for 45 minutes. Uh, But without you working in hearts, um, it will be of no good. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be so kind as you always are to answer this prayer and to help us grow in our understanding of your love for us and also to help us grow in our communication of the good news. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So on the table, as you guys walked in, there's a pamphlet. I mean, a, uh, a handout that you should have. There's a couple tracks. Um, one of them is for homework for next week. That's the Gospel Primer Prose version. Another one I'm going to be using as an illustration a little bit later. It's a little pamphlet. It should look like this. I think it made it to the back. Um, this is a little sermon by Jonathan Edwards. So I'd encourage you to get a copy of that. Um, but let's go ahead and, and just remind ourselves uh, that The class we've titled teaming up for evangelism uh, because uh, we want you guys to realize that you're not alone. As we've covered this class, we've talked about the fact that God is the primary evangelist. This is we've talked about the God of the gospel. Uh, This morning, we're going to be talking about what exactly is the gospel. The gospel is good news. Next week, we'll be talking about grazing on the gospel and the importance of feeding ourselves And then that you're part of a group called the church. God's just not kicking you out of the nest and saying, good luck. He's actually put you in a body of other people of different gifts. And he's given you the Holy Spirit. And by the way, he's armed you with the most powerful message in the universe. And that is the gospel, the power of God and salvation. Let's talk for a little bit about a person named Mr. McDonald. Well, we'll pretend like he's a farmer. Uh, Mr. McDonald, this is in the Wicked Gate that we had you guys read this week. Spurgeon says he asked the inhabitants of the island of St. Kilda how a man must be saved. It's a good question, right? He's talking to religious people. These are people that go to church. These are Christian people. He says, how can a person be saved? An old man replied, We shall be saved if we repent and forsake our sins and turn to God. Yes, said a middle-aged female, and with a true heart, too. I rejoined a third, and with prayer, and added a fourth, it must be the prayer of the heart. Quote, and we must be diligent, too, said a fifth, in keeping the commandments. Thus, each having contributed his might, feeling that a very decent creed had been made up, they all looked and listened to the preacher's approbation, Uh, but they had aroused his deepest pity. He had had to begin at the beginning and preach Christ to them. The carnal mind always maps out for itself a way in which self can work and become great. But the Lord's way is quite the reverse. You know, on a first read, you look at what these people are saying. It's you, you would think, oh, that sounds really good. We need to repent, forsake sin, turn to God, have a true heart, prayer, uh, really be sincere, be diligent in keeping the commandments. That sounds like a good gospel creed. One problem. There's no mention of Christ. No mention... Of the cross, It reminds me of a, an evangelism tool that I've used many times with Roman Catholics. It can work with other religions as well, where you lay out a bunch of cards with pictures on them, and you ask the person before you to pick up every card they think is necessary for salvation. The pictures on the cards show things like the Ten Commandments, feeding the poor, uh, prayer, attending church. And a good Roman Catholic who knows their theology will pick all of the cards up. Uh, but in my experience, many Roman Catholics will pick four, maybe three or four cards. Then there's a question card that, that just you basically ask the person, is there anything else you can think of? I have never had a Roman Catholic or a Mormon, for that instance, tell me there was anything else that was necessary for salvation. And then you, go, you turn over each card and you read them scripture verses that basically demonstrate that we cannot be saved by our works. And then you turn over the question card and you know the picture that's on it. It's the cross. And here's what people say. Oh, yeah, that too. That's what people do by nature. That's just not a Roman Catholic problem. That's a human problem. People, if we, aren't, if we don't think about it, and then if we're not opened up by the Holy Spirit with the true preaching of the gospel, we will heap things upon the cross to, to add to what must be done in order for us to be saved. And that was Mr. McDonald's experience. So let's talk about what is the gospel. This is very important. Um, I myself have done this. You know, as a a young Christian, I've seen many other believers do this. We get born again. The Holy Spirit fills us. We get truly born again. And we want to run out and start preaching the gospel, which is natural and it's good. It's a a natural desire. And I would never want to forbid a young believer from sharing the gospel. Um, But sometimes what will happen is over time, people start to lose what the gospel is. Or they'll hear things and they start to, to add things that aren't really in it, and then we'll go out sometimes and even preach the gospel out of guilt, as if my preaching of the gospel earns me favor before God, and then we'll unwittingly start to judge other people that aren't as evangelistic as us. Before you know it, my preaching of the gospel has turned into some legal righteousness that gives me a better standing before God. And then what happens with that kind of preaching is I start to heap guilt on other people, particularly Christians, which is kind of ironic. And and so we have to really remember what the gospel is, and by God's grace, cry out for mercy for daily bread to protect us from getting the gospel clogged up with other things. So let's do some let's do some memory work here. What is the gospel? Romans 115 says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. Right in this one verse, Paul tells us some things. The gospel, whatever it is, it's something that Paul's not ashamed of. Whatever it is, it's a good announcement. Our English word gospel is just a translation of the of the Greek word euangelion, which means good announcement. The gospel, it's something good and it's something that's announced. It's good news. Um, it's also the power of God. Pa- Paul doesn't call it a power of God, he calls it the power of God. So it's powerful. And it's powerful to save. So the gospel saves. And it's not restricted to one race or people group. It's for everybody. It's not just for Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles. That's why the gospel, you know, we're all sitting in this room as, you know, Americans in America. But you know where the gospel originated, right? Thousands of miles away over in the Middle East in a country called Israel. And then when it's spread out, it goes to North Africa and it starts moving around. Uh, the Mediterranean Mesopotamian area how in the world did the gospel get way over here to us pagans the gospel has spread and it's gone out to all races there are I don't see any Jews in here I know there are a few Jews in our church but we're all pagan Gentiles and the gospel came to us from thousands of miles away it's for all who believe so it's connected with faith and, um, and so that's that's what it is. So whatever it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's good news, it's powerful, it saves. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 real quick. We're not going to do a bunch of exposition of this text because we're going to spend a lot more time in Romans. But Paul says, moreover, verse 1, Brethren, I declared to you the gospel. I announced to you good news, which I preached, I heralded it to you, which... Uh, you also received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved. So there's the saved word again. The gospel's connected to being saved from something and for something in which you hold fast. That word which I preached, preaching seems to be surrounded around this gospel word, unless you believed in vain, faith, belief, salvation. These are all words that get coupled with the gospel. Then he's going to give us the truths that are surrounded around this gospel. Verse three, for I delivered to you through preaching implied first of all that, which I also received. So he received it himself that Christ died for what our sins. That's the first part of the gospel. Christ died. You think, well, that's a good, that's good news. Yes, it is. Christ died for sins. According to the scriptures, So this would be Old Testament scriptures that he was buried. That's good news. Yep. And he was raised again. Okay, that sounds better. He rose from the dead the third day, according to what the scriptures, the Old Testament, and that he was seen by Cephas. And then the 12 after that, he was seen by 500 and so on and so forth. So he was seen. By all kinds of people, they saw him raised from the dead. Look down at verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now we've got grace. This is a free gift, unmerited. Grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Grace does produce works, but it's not what produces salvation. The works don't produce salvation. Grace does. Uh, Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. It's grace that's the powerful working therefore whether it was i or they so we preached and so you believe there's the preached word again so these are two key passages that clue us in to what the gospel is let's give a, a working definition we'll start with our english word you guys may have heard the broadway play Godspell. Godspell. god anybody seen it uh I, okay it doesn't bother me i haven't seen it it's terrible uh, <clears throat> it's a false gospel um but the reason it's called God spell is because that really is the old English word that descends to our word gospel. It literally means God in this in the old English, it, we're not talking about God, we're talking about good. And spell is news. It's good news. That's where the word English word gospel comes from. It's a good news. And and so that's what leads uh Pastor Milton to say in the gospel primer. The gospel is good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's a fantastic definition. It's good news. It's good news about salvation. We're being saved from something. If you don't know that you need to be saved, if you don't know you're sick, if you don't know you're in trouble, then it's you don't want to hear the good news, right? Let's imagine that one of you were walking out in the parking lot. All of a sudden... I come running from 50 meters away. I hurl my body and I hit you with my body and knock you to the ground just for no reason. And you look up at me, you're like, what was that about? Right. But if suddenly you realize there was some maniac driving in the parking lot that was going 60 miles an hour and I saw it and somehow with superhuman strength, I was able to get to you in time hurl my body and save you, you'd be like, okay, now that's good news that somebody hurled their body into my body to rescue me from this car, right? So it's good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners. We deserve something. This thing is bad. It's called hell. We're sinners. We're going to talk about that. Sin is not a good thing. It's it's the it's coursing. It's the cancer of the soul that's coursing through our veins, as it were. And but this comes to us through a person, Jesus Christ, and His work that He accomplished in His life, death, resurrection, uh, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So, and so we're, that's what we're going to flesh out. What is the gospel? Let's turn to Romans ten. In Romans ten, we see. A microcosm of this good news really the whole book of Romans is a gospel track and then you get to Romans 10 and you get a flavor of what this gospel track has been doing for Paul's own heart and then he begins to exposit the gospel for us in a nutshell we're just going to hit some of the highlights and um And then look at some comments from some various writers, Spurgeon, Bunyan, John Gill, to kind of get a feel feel for what's going on here. So let's start in verse 1. I'm reading from a New King James Version. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Let's just stop right there. What is your heart's desire what do you find yourself praying about when we get filled up with this good message of the gospel that we see in Romans one through eight, particularly, and then bleeding out into chapter nine, it begins to produce this desire that Paul's talking about. There's this desire that's well, it starts to well up in us. And then that desire could stop. It could get clogged up, but for Paul, it issues forth in prayer so he doesn't just stop with the desire. He starts crying out to God because he knows that he can have the desire, but he really can't affect change in Israel. Um, so he prays for Israel. Why is he praying for Israel? Because he's a Jew and he cares about his family. He cares about his country. Who is it that your heart gets burdened for? You, you, you start thinking about salvation and your mind goes to someone. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a relative. I know, like when there's time. Every morning I wake up, and there's people. God through His Spirit is there's people on my mind. If I if I'm thinking rightly, and that'll start with a desire and a burden. But if I leave it there, then it just becomes a worry, right? But I want to take that desire and now start to cry out to the God of the universe who can do something about it. I can't affect change. I used to think I could affect change in my kids, for instance. I used to think that if I lived a good you know good enough life, I provided a good enough example, if I had enough Bible time, if I made them watch enough veggie tales, right? And so on Superbook and so on and so forth, maybe not veggie tales, but you know what I mean. Um, that I could affect change. And suddenly I began to realize the same depravity that's in me that was not going to yield until God opened my eyes is in them. And even though they're growing up in a pastor's house, guess what? They don't go to heaven by being born in a pastor's house. They're not going to make it there on my coattails or Katie's coattails God's got to do the same kind of work in their little hearts that he did in my little heart when I was 14 years old. And so I can try to beat the truth and the Trinity and everything else into them and ain't going to do anything unless the Holy Spirit shows up and they call out. And so I call out. We call out with Paul. My heart's desire and prayer for Israel, for our family, is that they may be saved right when we get a hold of the gospel the good news for held to serving sinners through the personal work of Jesus Christ what becomes our heart's passion is my heart's passion isn't oh man I really pray that all three of my kids will remain Republicans for the rest of their lives I pray that they don't get duped by any level of socialism for the rest of their lives I pray you know pick I hope that my kids are responsible and wealthy for the rest of their lives. I mean, there are some aspects of that, right? i got to be honest. I would be a little disappointed if one of my kids became a flaming, you know, whatever, politically, okay? But you know what? Really, what's our heart's desire? Salvation, right? We want people to be transferred out of darkness into light, And know Christ and the sweetness of Christ, not just so they can have fire insurance and we can see them as a good, happy family in heaven, but that they can taste what we taste of. Right. We've tasted honey. And when you taste the honey, you want other people to taste the honey so that they can experience God's goodness in this life. That's why that's how that why they were designed that they're designed with that. And they can go to the next life escaping hell and damnation so that they may be saved. And then, and then he goes on, verse two, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. My family, he says, Israel, they're very zealous. These are religious people. I'm not putting down the fact that they aren't religious, that there isn't some aspect in which they're trying to do the right thing. They're out there keeping the law. They're doing the very best they can with the knowledge that they have, To go out. And many of these people, truth be told, are outworking saints. They're outworking true believers with their zeal. But then he says, but not according to knowledge. I don't know if you've ever gone on a trip with your family, and there's been times where I've been driving a certain direction just to my own town, Merino Valley. And in the, when Katie and I were early in our marriage, she would kind of remind me that I was going the wrong way. But then after a while, she's, she's and, and this is all in good fun, she's just like, this guy has a master's degree. He's 50 years old, and he can't find Costco in Marina Valley. And we've lived here since 1998. I'm going to just let him figure this out. Let's see where he goes. And so we'll be in the car and I'll just be driving around and I'm talking and stuff like that. I have a lot of zeal to get to Costco, right? I want to do the very best I can, but I just have no knowledge of that big circle in Marina Valley. It confuses me and frightens me, right? But I'll tell you what. So I've got zeal, but no knowledge. But when I got the good news of my iPhone. And suddenly I could pump in addresses into my Google Maps. Now I can get anywhere I want to go, especially in Merino Valley. Right? I can find Winco now. I can find these things. But you can have zeal and yet just be running a hundred miles in the wrong direction. That's what Paul's telling us. Verse three, for they're ignorant, what are they ignorant of? This is the primary thing they're ignorant of. God's righteousness. Let me ask you a question. Are they completely ignorant of the fact that God has a standard of holiness and righteousness? Is that what Paul's saying? That they're ignorant of God's commands? Clearly not. Paul was a Jew of the Jews. He was not ignorant of God's standards in the law. He was not ignorant of God's holiness. They're ignorant of of God's righteousness, a righteousness that is provided as we go in the context and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they're trying to establish their own righteousness and they won't submit to God's righteousness. I want to propose to you that this word submit is basically the idea they've refused to bring their minds underneath God's provision of righteousness. In other words, they're not repentant. They're not repentant. And what is it that they're not repenting of? They're not repenting of their own righteousness, which is sin, and accepting God's provision of righteousness through Christ. They're not repentant in accepting an alien righteousness. They won't submit to it. And that by nature, is, that's what we do. We'll pick up all the other cards and we won't even think of the cross unless somebody else preaches the cross to us and the Holy Spirit interacts. Then you come to verse 4, and this is the kicker. This is really the crux of the chapter. The whole chapter moves on this hinge. For Christ, Paul doesn't forget about Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is good news. This is the gospel in its kernel. The gospel is primarily about a person. It's about Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the God-man came down to earth and he's the end of something. What does that mean? It's the end. I love the way Spurgeon says this. He, when he preached on this passage, he basically says for Christ to be the end of the law for righteousness means three things. One is Christ is the object of the law. The whole law points to Christ. That's why you've got blood everywhere. You you read your old Testament. Sometimes, We want to, we're embarrassed by all the blood and we see why is there so much blood? It's pointing somewhere. The end that it's pointing to is Christ. A leper gets cleansed. There's blood. There's somebody sins. There's blood. The Israel gets pulled out of Egypt. There's blood. It's just a bloody mess. You go in to worship the Lord morning and evening. You go into the temple. There's blood everywhere. Blood, blood doesn't smell good. There's flies. Um, it's a constant reminder that the law is serious. God is holy and you ain't making it. It's got to come from some other direction. To the, So the law points us to this sacrifice, to this blood. Even when you don't see blood directly mentioned, it's still implied like saying the brazen serpent. Situation where everybody's getting eaten or bit by these mysterious fiery serpent things, which I've done some research on. is kind of trippy because you would think you could outrun a snake, but a fiery serpent seems like a whole nother deal that can run you down. and uh, And so these things are biting people. God doesn't take them away; He just provides a brazen serpent. If you just look, you get bit. You look, and you'll be healed. That is crazy. It's not like, so if you don't look, you're going to die from the bite of the fiery serpent. If you do look, you'll be healed instantaneously. God could have gotten rid of the fiery serpents, but he doesn't. He allows them to continue around the camp and bite people. And then they just need to look and then they're healed immediately. <clears throat> and then Christ comes along and says, I'm, I'm the brazen serpent. I'm the one that's going to be lifted up on the cross. You just look to me. All you got to do is look and that's it. You're healed. That's just amazing. Christ is the end of the right. So he's the object, but also he fulfills the law. Christ is the end in the sense that he fulfills all of it. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to put away the law. I came to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle be put away until I fulfill all. What does that mean that he fulfills it all? Means that basically every single command, Jesus obeys his father's commands, Old and New Testament and in eternity, and never even complains about it. I don't know about you, but I I get good commands that and if I really think about it, they're good commands, but I'll still find myself complaining. Wasn't too awful long ago when when I was a new pastor at Cornerstone. There wasn't as many regulations. It was just me and Milton and we were all together all the time and I could kind of like govern my own schedule. I don't have to tell everybody what I'm doing. And but then they started saying, hey, you gotta put everything on Google on your Google Calendar. You gotta put on Google Calendar where you're at, what you're doing, just so that you're accountable. That's a good request, isn't it? Everybody else, I'm sure those of you guys that are working in other places, you have to be accountable to your employer for your time. I didn't like it. Like, why do I, why do I got to do this? I've been working here for how long? How long have I been a pastor here? And now I got to start every day logging onto the computer, what I'm doing. My heart's complaining. Guess what? Jesus never even had a heart complaint about anything that the father asked him to do. Never even a whisper of, ah, man, well, the father's asking me to do what? No. No. He fulfilled all righteousness. He's the end of the law, right? Christ is the end. And then he terminates it. He's the ultimate terminator, right? The tutor brings us to Christ. Christ shows up. Now we're sons and it ends. It's a built-in expiration date, right? You go to the store, you look at your milk, right? I always grab the milk in the very back and I bring it home right? I bring, I get the milk out of the back because I want the longer expiration date, but then you get home and you're drinking your milk. But I don't know about you. As soon as that milk is one day over, I don't drink it anymore. I don't even smell it. I just throw it out. I do that with my toast. I do it with everything else. If it's past the date, it's done. The law is good, but if it's past the date, it's not it's not useful anymore, and Jews that are now trying to establish their righteousness with an expired system are actually offending god you're You're actually misusing the purpose of the law now Spurgeon Gill these guys are awesome in demonstrating the purpose of the law uh any of you guys Pilgrim's Progress fans who's like a big just go woo pilgrim's Progress okay he 's got incredible images that help us understand the purpose of the law for the believer when you get into the interpreter 's house, Christian looks over he sees somebody coming over and trying to sweep up the um, the shop right the, and it's it 's kind of you have to imagine an old kind of floor, a wooden floor that had um, kind of gaps in it, and there 's dust and he 's sweeping. But what happens? As, he, as he, much as he sweeps, the dust just goes up into the air and now he's choking on it. And then somebody brings out some water, splashes water around. They're able to kind of mop it up and they get rid and they clean, clean the heart or clean the house. Spurgeon says, you know, through the interpreter, the law comes in and tries to sweep up the heart of man and tries to take care of original sin. But all it does is it aggravates the problem. That's exactly what the law does, even for us today. We try to be good little boys and girls. The law comes along and says, do this. We say, yeah, I'd like to do that. But I've got problem is there's a part of my heart that's bent on evil. And now that you've told me that's my duty, I'm actually inclined to even do it worse. I'm actually inclined to go harder in the other direction when we hear the law. It just stirs up the heart. But then the gospel comes in of grace and starts applying water to us and cleans our hearts up to Christ. Uh, That's Christ being the end of the law. Let me use one other analogy and then we'll move on. What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone to believe? I want you to imagine a street called uh, Law for Righteousness. There's a street called Law for Righteousness. And you're, driving, you're kind of driving along the street. I don't know if you ever been driv- if you ever driven out in the Mojave Desert and you're on some of these roads out there that aren't all that great, right? All of a sudden, you get to the county line somewhere. You ever been driving on a road, you get to the county line, and all of a sudden, what do you notice? Well, I'm driving on a nice piece of real estate now. I just crossed the county line, and now this road is awesome. How come the road's this way on that side? And it's so good on the other side of the county line. Well, the county is not going to pay to pave roads for the other county. Right. So you get to. And and there's this road called uh, basically law of righteousness that we've been trying to establish ourselves. We're out there trying to work on it. We're trying to get better. And it's still potholes. And it's really just spinning in a circle. It's not going anywhere. Suddenly we come. We hear the gospel preach. We come to the county line and there's this new road on the other side that Christ has established. It's the end of the old road. It's a new road. And this is a beautiful road. And by the way, it's a blood-stained road. And we get onto that road by faith. We just believe, wow, all I got to do is cross the county line. And now I'm on this beautiful road that I didn't have to build. I, this, my tax dollars didn't even go for this thing. And I'm just driving on this nice new blood-stained road. Who paid for this? Jesus Christ paid for it with his own blood. That's part of what it means for Christ being the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. That's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. It's just belief. And even long into our faith sometimes, we understand this as Christians and we get born again. But we have to relearn it over and over again because in our hearts... Even as born-again Christians through indwelling sin, we're kind of closet Catholics when it comes right down to it. We keep wanting to either add things to say, I did this, or we want to establish even a good duty can all of a sudden take a little turn. And Adam can yank at us, like it says in Pilgrim's Progress, pull apart of our flesh, start making us feel pretty good. Like we can start a renewed commitment to to Bible reading and devotions. And that's very important. I commend reading through the whole Bible. All of a sudden, the devil works with your flesh. and You're like, I'm doing pretty good at this. You know, I've been reading my Bible every day. Why don't more people read their Bible? Why aren't more people putting God's word in their hearts like I am? All of a sudden, now... You're starting to compare and contrast. Why are you reading the Bible? Only by God's grace, because the Holy Spirit has given me a greater sense of my own need, and now He's wooing me to Himself, right? Or you get a renewed interest in evangelism. You, the Lord starts doing a work in your heart all of a sudden. You find yourself carrying around gospel tracts. You find yourself the, the spirits filling you and just the the honey of the gospel starts dripping off your lips more freely, which is a grace of God. And then even as a believer, that internal sin can start to rise up and the devil can take advantage and you can be like, man, I just feel so great about sharing the gospel. Just really. Why aren't more believers sharing the gospel? You know, a Cornerstone, we have all these people. They come and they hear preaching every week. They're feeding and feeding and feeding themselves. I never see anybody out there preaching the gospel like I am. How come when I'm out there on the streets, I don't see any of you guys? Well, maybe because you're home taking care of your kids, preaching the gospel to your own kids, or any number of things that you guys are involved in. But you see how tricky it is. And so we're always having to go back and be reminded of the good news. This is ultimately good news. I want to encourage you to spend some more time in this in this chapter. We're going to have to move on and, and hit a couple. Well, let's hit a couple uh, quotes here on 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 verse four. Spurgeon has this to say: as Bunyan would say, it may perhaps set their mouths a watering after it, and when a sacred appetite begins. It will not be long before the feast is enjoyed. It may be that when they see the raiment of wrought of gold, which Jesus so freely bestows on naked souls, they will throw away their filthy rags, which they uh, hug so closely. Uh, I just love the image that when we preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit's in the business of causing thirst, and then people will begin to come. And it's really, it's nothing more than you or I announcing the good news and then letting the Holy Spirit work. Listen to what Gill has to say about verses 6 and 7. This is pretty crazy. If you look at verses 6 and 7, this, this verse has confused me for years. These two verses where Paul says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will send into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ down, uh, to bring Christ up from the dead. He's kind of quoting Deuteronomy 30, using it as somewhat of a an analogy. There's this Jewish idea that basically, you know, uh, you know Moses says, the, the truth that I'm preaching to you is not super far away. It's not in heaven. It's not way across the sea. It's right there in your mouth. It's right here. God's just, he's holding it out to you. You don't have to run around the world and research every single philosophy and religion. It's right here before you being offered to you by the Lord. I'm going to read at length what Gill says. Do you guys have that on your notes? It's in the in the packet. Listen to what John Gill says. So here are forbidden all such thoughts, words or expressions which carry such a sense as this. Who will go down to the deep to fetch such a wretch as I out of the lowest hell to deliver me from the curses of the law and the wrath of God and bring me out of the wretched, miserable condition in which I am and go to heaven and carry me there and put me in the possession of the undefiled inheritance. All this is as impossible to be done as for a man to ascend to heaven and go into the deep. It's like, how can I possibly get there? Did Christ, has? Who could really come down and do this for us? Who could really go down into the grave? It's basically to deny that Christ did come down and that he did come up from the grave. Now listen to the further development. Now, uh, Gil says, though the righteousness of the law encourages such despondency and black despair, so the law comes along and says, this is the standard, right? And we're like, oh, how could I possibly do that? And then Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and says, yeah, this is the standard. Now let's talk about the heart. This is the standard. Jesus doesn't reduce the standard at all. He raises the stakes and says it's in the heart. And then we're like reeling. I used to wonder, why am I why as a younger Christian, why do I read the Sermon on the Mount and at the end I'm depressed? That's the intent, right? Now look what he says. So black despair the righteousness of faith, or the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ's righteousness, forbids everything of this kind, assuring the sinner that, one, Christ is come down from heaven in human nature, that he has fulfilled all the righteousness of the law by his obedience in life, and has borne the penalty of it in his sufferings and death, and has risen again for justification, so that such questions should not be put nor such despairing thoughts be encouraged, at least by the thought of the gospel. Yes, the law may raise those kind of despairings, but the gospel should never raise those despairings because Christ has done it all. And then he finishes with this. Besides, to think and speak in this manner is to set aside the whole scheme of the gospel and to suppose the person in doubt whether Christ is come down from heaven and therefore asks who shall go up to bring him down. And that he has not risen from the dead and therefore puts the question, who shall go down into the depth to fetch him up? Whereas he is already come and obeyed and suffered and died and rose again and become the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. End of story. This is good news. The good news is, is that you and I are deadly sick. We have a cancer. It's fourth stage. You are not going to survive this. It's a cancer of your soul. And unless somebody enters in and does something for you, it's over. There's nothing you can do to work yourself out of this. There's no chemotherapy that can help you. There's no magic potion. But suddenly, Christ enters in and says, I'm the anecdote. I'm the great physician. I'm the cure. All you have to do is look to me. That's it. Look to Christ and you will be healed. And I bring you into me through faith. And so we come into Christ through faith. And then Christ spends. And it's now the father looks at us. And sees the righteousness of Christ. And then Christ spends the rest of his life. Squeezing us. Loving us. Kind of squeezing the sponge so to speak. And squeezing that poison out of us. That's still there. We don't come in. And suddenly now we're all better in and of ourselves. We come into Christ and we're all better because we're wrapped up in his righteousness. But we're still got this spongy heart thing that's got some poison in it. And Jesus starts squeezing us with love. He starts hugging on us. He brings circumstances in our life not to establish us as more favorable to God. God can't be more pleased with us because he loves us in Christ and he can't love his son anymore. But then because he does love us, he's not content to let us stay in the poison. And Jesus begins to squeeze us like SpongeBob, right? We're like little SpongeBob's and just squeeze and squeezes more poison out and just keeps squeezing us throughout our lifetime. And the father keeps loving us because he infinitely loves the son. And we're in, that's good news. Is that good news? And that's what we preach. You guys look at the, the rest on your own. I, if you didn't have time to look at the Wicket Gate um, section, I would encourage you to go back and look at it because uh, I'm just a big Spurgeon fan and he gets the gospel. He gets that the gospel is good news. And I think when, if you read those first four chapters, part of the feeling that you're going to get when you read him is, wow, this is good stuff. And God is kind. And, And he has not made it as hard as I thought it was. Read those chapters on your own. Because what you're going to find is exactly what we're seeing in last week's lesson. Is that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Right? Merciful to thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. That's the first description of our God. And then it says, by no means clearing the guilty. And so then we're like, oh, I'm guilty. And then he sends Jesus Christ, his son, to be the curse for us and to take the penalty of our guilt. So that if we simply believe, we escape what we rightfully deserve outside of Christ. It's befuddling and it's good news and if we can really get our minds around what the gospel is, here's what happens. When we get our minds around the love of God through the gospel, that begins to constrain and compel us to do things that are beyond us. And now we start to bubble forth with this living water. We taste the honey and we want to share the honey, right? I don't know if you, get, if you ever get a brand new device, right? You're just excited about it. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about your new device, right? Your new phone your new game, your new book, your new car. When you're tasting of the good news of the gospel, it starts to bubble out in different ways. Now we're different gifted. Sometimes it's going to bubble out in service. Sometimes it's going to bubble out in words, but it's going to bubble out. And then the Lord begins to use you to share this good news. And if it emanates that way, then the words that you begin to speak when you preach the gospel will have that good news flair about them rather than, God's got bad news for you. we know the bad news is already there, right? There is bad news, and we do have to talk about the bad news, but we need to talk about Christ more than anything we need i I'm convinced when I go out I'll have to end on this when I go out to u c r different places i'm talk i I start talking about Christ and good news. And sometimes people are looking at me like, I've never heard this view of God before. People have this view of God that he's this big ogre in the sky that's ready just to rip people up. Um, Or they just don't think about God. He doesn't enter into their thoughts. When we were preaching about Jonathan Edwards' words that he'll be a lion to your enemies, but a lamb to you. I, I was amazed how befuddled people look. And, and and the vast majority of the people that we're preaching the gospel to are not like foaming at the mouth, button heads with us. They're kind of like, wow, that's that's Christianity. That's the gospel. Yes, it is. It's good news. If you have questions, come on up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this gospel. That is God's spell. It is good news. We pray, Father, that. You would help us to be overwhelmed with this good news um, so that we could do things that really don't establish any favor or righteousness before you. You don't need us to preach the gospel. You've been doing very well without us. But you are pleased to fill us with the good news and to fill us with your spirit to move your church out to do things through love that we could never do otherwise. We pray, Father, that we would drink deeply of this fountain Lord, that we would understand the gospel for ourselves through the spirit, that it would be um, our experience in our hearts, not just facts in our minds. And Lord, that you would use uh, your spirit to cause us to go out with more joy to share this goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen.